Uh, Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're continuing to wrestle with the question, life is hell, life is but a vapor and it's gone. Uh, Life is uh, just a puff of smoke. Uh, We'll be in chapter 3, the first 15 verses this morning. I was going to cover the entire chapter, but uh, I actually uh, decided I was going to take the end of chapter 15 in the beginning, excuse me, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 next week because they they tie uh, together. So we're just going to do the first 15 verses this morning. So you can follow along uh, on the screen as we read it in just a minute. But uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the famous uh, existentialist who was quoted in the movie Caddyshack, so he had to have, he, he's, he's got that going for him. Uh, and I'm not suggesting you watch that movie, by the way. Uh, but Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, talks about the moment of uh, his salvation. Now, by that, I don't mean the moment where he put his faith in Christ, but I mean the moment where for him, the lights came on and he realized how utterly meaningless everything was. So this is Sartre speaking about the moment uh, of his conversion. It was true. I had always realized that I hadn't any right to exist at all. I had appeared by chance. I existed like a stone, a plant, a microbe, I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. I was thinking that here we are eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence and that there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. If you've been with us the last uh, three weeks, you might say, well, boy, he fits right into Ecclesiastes. Perhaps he and the, and the preacher uh, were good buddies. Maybe their paths crossed at some time uh, because we're tempted to see Ecclesiastes as uh, the statement of meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And yet that's not what the author of Ecclesiastes is after. Now, he takes us there to make the point. And he doesn't rescue us, as we said a couple weeks ago. He leaves us in the, the, the mud, so to speak, for a good long while. And, and this morning, he's going to kind of pull us out of that a little bit. And he's going to show us a little bit different perspective of this life. And he's going to begin to introduce the question of God and our relationship with God into the equation. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the first 15 verses, and we've read them out loud together. I'm going to read them for us again one more time. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Time to be born, a time to die, time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn. And a time to dance, time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from all his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. 
I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we have come to you in prayer uh, with uh, confession of our sins, with uh, needs on our hearts, with thanksgiving, with, with praise to you for who you are. Father, we ask now that you would help us to understand your word, that you would allow us by the power of your Holy Spirit to worship you with our intellect and with our reason. Lord, these are, are deep thoughts. They are challenging notions and ideas. Uh, in a sense, we're in the deep end of the pool, but Lord, you have given us this word as a word of life, as a word of salvation. And so as we study the words of the preacher, we pray that you would help us to understand them in the, in the context of all of your word, and that we would apply this message uh, this morning appropriately. Lord, as always, we, we pray that we would hear your word, uh, not my words, not my thoughts. Lord, I pray that you would forgive any sin in my heart uh, or in my mind uh, that would uh, prevent us from understanding your word. Lord Jesus, please uh, teach us, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, the message of Ecclesiastes is really about approaching life here on this earth. Uh, how do we look at it? And so this morning, we're going to consider that approaching life on earth from God's perspective on time is both wise and fulfilling. So we're going to look at the notion of God and time in the context of our lives. I have two observations uh, about this text this morning. We're going to spend some time uh, looking at time and events. We're going to look at the first eight verses and how those fall under God's providential care. Providential meaning that God is in control and that, and that God is working out uh, the history of mankind as he sees it. And then the second thing is we want to dig into, through looking at verses 9 through 15, we want to dig into a little bit uh, what does that mean uh, for us kind of on a, on a daily basis. But let's begin uh, with the time and events under God's providential care. What we have in the first eight verses is a series of related opposites. So the, these things are opposite. A uh, time to be born, a time to die. Those are, those, are, those are opposites. A time to weep and a time to laugh, but they're related to one another. Uh, if I were to say to you this morning, if you'd walked in or you'd never heard the Bible in your life, you had a few years of life experience and we were chatting over a cup of coffee and a donut hole out in the, in the atrium. And I said, you know what? There's a time to laugh and there's a time to mourn. You wouldn't go, oh my gosh, that's the most phenomenal thing I've ever heard in my life. That notion has never crossed my, my, my pathway. You're a genius. You're profound. Uh, you know, you should be in an ivory tower somewhere. You would shrug and go, yeah, that, that's how life is. But what is happening here with these related opposites is that the author is actually taking a bit of a turn and he's going to begin to look at the world through the question of God being sovereign over time. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because of the first verse. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, you notice there's a shift there. There's a change. Most of the time, the author is talking about life on this earth. He says, under the sun, but not here. He says, under heaven, and we need to understand the distinction. When the author is talking about under 
under the sun, he's talking about life without the acknowledgement of God and his part that he plays as the creator and as the Lord of all that is. When he uses the phrase under heaven, he's talking about under the lordship of God, under his direction, under his sovereign power. Therefore, time is not kind of ambiguous. You know, some things happen this way, some things happen way. There's, there's really no rhyme or reason. No, what the author says is under God's direction, there's a time for everything. And there you see that list again. We're not going to go through it, but everything has its place. Well, how does he come to that conclusion? Well, let's look at this through, through a couple of questions. Who is the one who determines the time of birth and the, the time of death? Man doesn't determine that. Humanity doesn't determine it. You didn't choose to be born in a certain generation or a certain time. That's under God's providential care. You will die someday, uh, and that day is, is a mystery uh, to yourself and a mystery to everybody else in this room. We have no idea when you're going to die. I have no idea when I'm going to die. I think I, I mentioned this uh, earlier this year. Maybe I was walking uh, through a cemetery years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, in a meeting, and I saw somebody whose birthday, or excuse me, whose death, death date was January 30th, 1959. That was the day I was born. There's a time to be born and a time to die, but, it, but it's a mystery to us. We don't know, but God is under, has that under his divine providence. Who establishes the seasons of planting and harvest? The Lord does that. Who killed animals because of Adam and Eve's sin in order to cover their nakedness? There's a time to kill, but also freely heal. There's a time to heal the sick, the lame, the blind, the demon-possessed. Who fought Israel's battles for them, but is also named the Prince of Peace? When we think about time, we tend to think that things are arbitrary, but they are not. The author of Ecclesiastes demands that we understand that God's divine providence is there for his people. Therefore, that should lead me, it should lead us, I think, to some self-reflection. I'm going to offer for the next few minutes a handful of, of ideas on self-reflection, but I would encourage you to think about what they should be for you. So this is kind of just to get the juices flowing, so to speak. If there is a time for everything under heaven, if God is providential, then that should give me some peace and perspective in every set of circumstances in which I find myself. If there's a time for all of these things, that means there's going to be a time of mourning in my life. It means there's going to be a time of deep sadness in my life. Uh, if there's a time for death, we, you know, my mom just passed away last summer, there's a time for mourning. It wasn't a time to dance. It wasn't a time to grieve. It was a time to weep. But do I weep and do I mourn and do I grieve? with the understanding that God is caring for me and that God has marked out the days of my life, that this isn't just kind of all happening by fate. Do I have a peace because of what God is doing in control? Or do I want to be God? Do I want to take control or have control of my life? Jesus says, good luck with that. If you really want to try it in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this, that which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? Now you think about that. I, I can't add the, the days of my life are numbered by God. Well, then Jesus says, if that's the case, then if you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? How small is adding a an hour to a person's life? That Only God can do that. And yet Jesus calls it a small thing. What's he saying? He's saying you ought not try to play God. You should submit to God. You should trust God. You should allow God 
his divine providence over every aspect of your life. But secondly, also not only a peace or a perspective in moments of struggle, but does it kind of on a daily basis give me discernment? Does, does it say uh, to me, you know, Tom, you ought to think before you speak because there is a time to be quiet and there is a time to speak. There, there is a time to embrace, but there's also a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to go and seek and look diligently, but there's also a time to just sit and, and, and not look and let what's lost continue to be lost for some amount of time. I'm going to go back to Jesus for just a minute. He says as much in Luke chapter 15. If you've read Luke 15, you probably uh, remember that as what we call uh, Luke 15 is, is the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. Actually, you need to read Luke 15 in its entirety. There's actually three stories in Luke 15. The first story is about a lost sheep. The second story is about a lost coin. And the third story is about a lost boy. And what you end up finding out is actually a couple of boys were lost. One of them just didn't realize he was lost. And Jesus says this to his listeners. What happens when you lose a sheep? You go and you seek diligently till you find it. And when you find it, you celebrate. What happens when you lose a valuable coin? You go look for it. And when you find it, you call all your friends and you celebrate because you found a lost coin. Why? Because sheep don't have the sense to come home. A sheep can't figure out the pathway back. The sheep doesn't even know where it's going in the first place. And a lost coin is an inanimate object. The lost coin isn't sitting under the sofa going, I really hope somebody looks under the sofa eventually. I really hope I'm found and put in the safe deposit box so this doesn't happen to me again. Sheep can't find their way home. Coins aren't going to look. So you got to go look for them. But you don't go look for a lost boy. You got to let a lost boy be lost for a while. Why? Because he needs to come to his senses. You don't go look for the little one immediately. You don't rescue your children from pain of the decisions they might make too quickly because they won't learn the lesson and then they'll never truly, really come home. Uh, I'm, I'm in a Bible study right now. I'm doing a series of Bible studies this year called Tom's Topics. And it's basically kind of what do I, what do I feel like I want, I want to do? I guess when you get old, you start thinking that way. That's not necessarily a good way to think. Uh, but the topic we're on right now is called Dads with Daughters. And, and most of the guys in this group, they're about 17, 18 of us. Most of the guys in the group, not me, uh, have daughters as young as little ones, you know, preschool all the way up through uh, high school. We've got a couple that have a little beyond high school, but that's, that's kind of the age range. And we're talking about how to be dads with daughters. And you don't think the major uh, motivating factor in that Bible study is fear? <laughs> if you don't think that, you, you, you don't have a daughter. You've never had a daughter. My, my daughter's 32. I'm still, you know, anxious about her on, on most days because <laughs> she's way too much like me. But tell a dad, you know what? Let that daughter struggle just a little bit. Don't, don't rescue her too quickly lest she not learn the lesson. And that's hard. That's, that's a difficult one because we want to go, we want, we want to bring them back. But what, what God is saying here in, in Ecclesiastes is what Jesus is saying in Luke 15, let God work out his purposes. There's a time to go look for something if it, if it can't find its way back. But, but let God be providential. Give yourself the opportunity for discernment to make not necessarily the easy decision, but the good decision another uh, self-reflection opportunity. Am I active when I should be? There are times to kind of sit and let it play out, but there's also lots of things that ought to be done, planting and harvesting and sowing and tearing and, and, and loving and hating and weeping and rejoicing. There's lots of things. That there ought to be activity in my life. Am I following Jesus? 
Am I following the Lord? Say, Lord, show me where to go and show me what to do. I want to be part of what you're doing in this world. Beyond that, another opportunity for self-reflection. Am I really submitting my will to his? If there's a time for everything and God has ordained it, then I ought to trust him. Then I ought to pray the prayer that, that Jesus wants us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means in my life. Your kingdom come, your will be done in Tom's life just as it is in heaven. Do I really mean that? A lot of times I don't. A lot of times I go off on my own way. And so I have to be reminded, and James does a wonderful job of reinforcing uh, this point, uh, that I need to submit my will to his. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourselves, there's that word again, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The better part of wisdom coming out of Ecclesiastes, coming out of all of Scripture, is that I submit my will to the one who loves me, to the one who gave himself for me, to trust in him. And when I get out of that, when I get out of that groove, when I get out of that lane, so to speak, I need to confess that sin. I need to acknowledge that I've gone my own way. I need to acknowledge that, that I need to return to my father. All of this is encouraging because of one other observation here, and that is that God has said there's a time for everything, and God holds himself to his own standard. God, God doesn't say, now, you know, you guys, you know, be organized and trust me, and then God runs off and he's chaotic in everything he does. God has an order to his, uh, to his work in this world. We call uh, the, the work that Jesus did the plan of salvation. There's a plan that God is enacting to bring people to himself. If you look at Galatians chapter 4, fascinating verse. But when the fullness of time had come, the way we would say it is when the time was just right. So think about a really good book or a really good movie, and you're right at that point where it looks you know, like the bad guys are going to win, everything is going to fall apart, and if somebody doesn't do something now, we're all lost, and boom, there, there's the hero stepping onto the scene just at the right moment. A little bit earlier, it wouldn't have worked too late, and we'd all, we'd all been goners. Just at the right moment, what happened? God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, and that sons as children, men, men and women, all of us, so that you were no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. Remember that God has established times, and he's using just the right moment, just the right time for all of his plans, which leads me to ask the, the ultimate question, then we'll move on to the second point, is this, am I seeing contentment growing in my life? I understand I'm not going to be content all the time, and I'm going, to, I'm going to fall short of trusting God always, but do I see a spirit of contentment growing in my life? Even when I'm in a tough spot, even when I'm, maybe it's something that, that something's happened to me and I had no control over, or maybe it's a, a self-inflicted wound that I created for myself, but God wants to do something in my heart and my content to sit and, and, and to allow him to be Lord over my life. Paul says to, to young Timothy, young, Paul, the old pastor says to a young pastor, godliness with contentment has great gain. Godliness with contentment has great gain. I think the first eight verses in Ecclesiastes chapter three challenge us to move towards contentment in, in God. 
But secondly, uh, dig into the application of God's promises. In verse 9 through 15, the preacher begins to kind of flesh this out. Uh, So what does this mean that God's providential care is over all things? Well, the first thing he does is he revisits a question he asked earlier, but there's a distinction here. There's something that's left out. So the question is, what gain has the worker from all his toil? Now, if you've been here for the last four Sundays, you're like, I've I've heard that somewhere. I I know that's something that, that I've heard somewhere. That's right. Chapter 1, verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Different here. It simply says, what gain is there for a worker from all his toil? So we're revisiting the question, but there's an omission that distinctively moves us more in a positive direction. The the author of Ecclesiastes is going to begin now to introduce God specifically into the conversation, and he's going to actually have a reason for hope. So you've you've probably heard the same before. Some people look at the world and their glass is half empty. And some people look at the world and their glass is half full. And you kind of, if you, if you explain to me, you know, somebody you say, which are you? You'll lie. Oh, I'm a a glass half empty person. Folks know what you mean. Or I'm a glass half full. I have, I have a friend in my life who's been a friend for a long time. And I say this to, to this particular friend every so often in a teasing and a loving way. I have friends who say their glass is half full. I have friends who say their glass glass is half empty. You can't even find the glass. <laughs> it can't be that bad, right? And and uh, the person laughs at me, and then we you know we figure stuff out. But if you've got you know a good idea and twenty four great outcomes and and one not so great outcome, guess where we're going to land? <laughs> we're gonna, and you're like, well, that's Ecclesiastes, right, Tom? This guy's just negative all the time. No, he actually he might not be turning from Eeyore to Tigger, but he's going to begin to make a subtle shift here that is important. So the last time he asked the question, what happens when man works under the sun without God? And he comes quickly to the conclusion, it's all meaningless and it's all worthless. This time he's talking about man's work under heaven because look at what he says next. What gain is there for a worker from his toil, all right? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, And now something incredibly uh, positive. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God's providence, divinely orchestrated, are intended to bring moments of joy into your life and into my life. Not just as a Christian, but humanity in general. So have you ever, I'm not a beach person, but if I were a beach person, I would not have a beach house on the eastern um, um, beach side of Florida, I would be on the western side because I want to see the sunset. I love beautiful sunsets. Been in Colorado in the mountains, high up in the mountains where you see a beautiful sunset. And what do you do? You just want to sit there. You don't want it to end. And when the sun finally goes down all the way, what do you say? Could somebody rewind that? Could, could we just do that again? Could it, could it just last a little bit longer? It's just a, a moment of great joy. Have you ever read a book that you just couldn't put down? And I'm not just, t- you know, talking about Christian books. I was, yeah, I was reading my Bible the other day and I couldn't put it down because I'm in church and that's what I'm supposed to say. It, you, you should read your Bible and there should be times when you just do not want to put it down. But you ever read a great, you know, John Grisham novel and you looked at the clock and it was two o'clock in the morning and you just had to read one more chapter? There's just moments of, of joy. Have you ever had a, a glass of wine, a, a bottle, shared a bottle of wine with some friends or a great cup of coffee and it was so good, you just, you were just sad that, it, that it, when you got to the bottom of the cup. The author of Ecclesiastes says, these are gifts that God gives. I know the business that God has given for man, and he's given these moments 
of great joy, moments of great beauty. But not only has he done that, he's done it in a way that that takes his time frame into the equation. So look at the second half of verse 11. So he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, this is the continuation of verse 11, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What, what the preacher is saying is, is that God has created this notion of eternity so that when you look at a sunset, when, you, when you're reading a great book, where, whatever that circumstance may be, and you're having these moments of joy, you're like, there's something bigger than me. There's something greater than me. Any of us who have had a child born and have held that child in our arms in the first five minutes of their life know exactly what I'm talking about. You look at that child and you go, this is a, thank you very much. You're preaching to yourselves. This is a miracle. It's a moment that God has given. Why has he given us that? So we'll understand that there's something greater than ourselves and we'll want to look. We'll, we'll want to find it. We'll want to move toward him, not away from him. But he doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't tell us the beginning from the end. We cannot find out everything about God. So I say to people all the time, God has absolutely told me enough and he's told you enough to know him and to come to him in faith. He hasn't told us everything about himself. He's saving some of the good stuff for later on because you don't put everything great in the book in the first two chapters. You spread it out and you got to get to that experience. And eventually we will get to that experience where we're with him and we know him even that much more deeply and that much more intimately. And that's when it will all really come together. But up until that moment, God creates within us. It's a God-given desire to know him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love this, this comment by C.S. Lewis. He says this, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but arouse it to suggest the real thing. Go to that next slide. Thank you. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty comes from. The scent of the flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard the news from a country we have never yet visited. Part of God's providence over time and this putting eternity into our heart, but not revealing everything to us is to give us a longing that draws him to, to draws us to himself. But there's also some things to be done in this life. There's, there's not only uh, an attitude, but also an action. So the author goes on in verses 12 and 13 to give us some uh, what we call uh, imperatives, what we, what we ought to be doing. So they're not like suggestions, like, no, this is kind of how life should be working. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So there's, there's three kind of imperatives there. Be joyful, do good, 
take pleasure. And so I want to look at it from two different sides. The first is just the, this notion of, of, of being, being joyful and taking pleasure. And so that's the Boston Marathon. Uh, and I, I, I'm guessing there may be folks in our congregation, I know that have run marathons. I don't know if we have anybody that's run Boston or not, but look at the look on that woman's face. I mean, is she not excited? I'm, I'm pretty sure the guy in the black on the right is going to fall over the finish line, <laughs> but, but he's made it 26 miles further than I ever had. Uh, but look at the pleasure that she is taking. And she didn't win. There were people in front of her, but she finished. Look how excited she is. Look how happy she has. Can, can I just give you all permission to go be happy this week? Is that okay? Just, you know, if you, if you like to run, I don't know why, but if you like to run, <laughs> go run. You know, you probably look at me and go, why would you want to go hit a bucket of golf balls for an hour and a half and then go to the, but I, I don't know, it's just how God's hardwired me. Go, go have some fun. Go enjoy. Go take pleasure. But notice what else it says. Do some good. Do some good. So I've got a, a same verse, but different uh, picture on our attitude and our action. And that's uh, our, one of our Homes of Hope teams. And one of the homes there, and you see the family there that's going to be moving uh, into that house. And if you didn't know who those people were, you could not tell by the smiles on people's faces who, who was getting the house and who had just built it and was going home. Because they all are smiling that big of a smile. Why is that? Because they're doing good. They're reflecting the godness in them to the world around them. And that's attitude before it's ever action. If I don't think to myself, I need to do some good around here, it's never going to just happen arbitrarily. But as I read this passage of Scripture, I see that God's organized all of us. So I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know if the Lord wakes me up tomorrow and he gives me breath in my lungs and he gives me a day to live, I have the opportunity to do good. And I have the opportunity to have some fun. And I have some, some, some chances to think about how God is divinely orchestrating the steps of my life, which leads to the last observation, verses 14 and 15, where the author, the preacher says, just please let God be God. Don't take it over. Don't, don't try to orchestrate it from yourself. You, you, will, you will fall flat on your face. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Now, when you read that, you ought to look at that cross right behind me, because it means that your salvation is good. And it's not ever going to change. You know why? Because he goes on to say this, not only endures forever, but nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. God has done it so that we do what? We worship. We fall before him. We give him praise. We give him reverent awe. We are fearful of God in the right sense of the word. We shake a little bit in our boots. It's a holy shaking, but we shake a little bit in our boots because God is God. And what he does endures forever. So the past, the present, the future, all of it is in his care. Therefore, he is worthy of all of my worship, of all of my respect, uh, of all of the, the awesomeness about God that I can muster in my soul. And because he will seek what has been driven away. And that, that's kind of a, an odd Hebrew phrase. There's a lot of conversation about that among theologians. By the way, theologians are people that really have boring lives, um, but somebody's got to think about this stuff. So, and, but this notion that he's going to seek what's been driven away is kind of obscure, but ultimately I believe it means this, that God will redeem all of human history, the past, the present, and the future. God will, re will redeem what's been driven away by our sin. He will redeem all of human history. And I want to reinforce that with uh, a verse in Revelation chapter 7 where it speaks to this. I looked 
and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Nobody could count how many people were there from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages. And that, that does not mean just representative of each group, but it means each group, each generation. So people from, from the beginning of time to the end of time, every generation God is caring for. How? Because they're before the throne and they're crying uh, before the lamb. And they're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. God will redeem all of human history in his time and in his way. Is our trust in that? Is our hope in that? Is our rest in that? I'm going to end with a quote from Philip Ryken, who's one of the, these theologians, who I actually think is actually, uh, he probably has, he, he has some interesting things to say. He's probably got a pretty good life. Uh, but here's the application. It's as simple as this. Eternal redemption is our hope whenever we feel caught between time and eternity. What we do in this life matters. The work of God endures forever, including whatever good work we are busy doing in the name of Jesus. Therefore, our lives and labor are not in vain. The same God who put eternity into our hearts will make everything beautiful all in his good time. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your lordship over time. We thank you for your providential care for your people, including our lives. Lord, we don't know. Uh, nobody in this room knows whether the Chiefs or the 49ers are going to win this afternoon. Uh, and if we think we do, we're, we're nuts. Uh, we, we don't know what's going to happen for lunch today. Father, you know the beginning from the end. And because you providentially care for us, we can rest in that. But we can also move in that. We can live in that. We can just enjoy some fun every once in a while in that. We can roll up our sleeves and get to work doing hard stuff because of, of your providential care. And we can and should and must worship you because of that. So Father, make us a, a worshiping people and all that that means in your time and in your way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.